Welcome to the Bigger Pockets Money Podcast, show number 327, where we interview Brian Feraldi and talk about the stock market. Only information that most people get about the stock market is what? Price. That's it. That's the only information that people have access to. That's the only thing that 99% of people look at and focus on when they're talking about the stock market. What is hidden behind that, if you dig into details a little bit more, is that behind the stock market are those businesses, and those businesses are generating profits. And if you look over long stretches of time, the undeniable trend of those business profits are up and to the right. That is the reason why the stock market has always recovered from, from previous crashes, is that business profits eventually recover, and that leads to higher prices. Hello, hello, hello. My name is Mindy Jensen, and joining me today is my everyday as a party co-host, David Perret. <laughs> I'm glad somebody thinks I'm an optimist. I feel like I feel like the world probably sees another side of me half the time, but but I'd like to think I'm a I'm a eternal optimist, and it probably bites me in the butt more than it helps anything. <laughs> <laughs> Every day's a party with David Perret. Hip, hip, Perret. David and I are here to make financial independence less scary, less just for somebody else. To introduce you to every money story, because we truly believe financial freedom is attainable for everyone, no matter when or where you're starting. Whether you want to retire and travel the world, go on to make big-time investments in assets like real estate, or start your own business, we'll help you reach your financial goals and get money out of the way so that you can launch yourself towards your dreams. David, I am super excited to talk to Brian Feraldi today. He is the author of a new book called Why Does the Stock Market Go Up? Everything You Should Have Been Taught About Investing in School But Weren't. And you had a very funny joke at the end of our recording after we hit stop. You said, you should have named this Why Doesn't the Stock Market Go Down? And he said, well, that's because I'm bad at timing the market. <laughs> That's very true. And that's exactly right. Nobody is good at timing the market. You should never try to time the market. Today, we learn about the market. We talk about what the stock market is. We talk about the multi-million dollar mistake that you could be making and not even be knowing it. We talk about earnings and P.E. ratios, and we talk about valuations. We talk about a lot of fun things on this episode. Well, fun for us. If you're listening to this show, you're probably going to find it fun, too. Yeah, no, this is a lot of fun. I, you know, it's funny because we had a, an issue there with the recording for a minute. And so I asked him a question off off the record, which ended up being a really good answer. And I think we're going to leave it on the record about Tesla and P.E. ratios and stuff. And I even made the comment to you. I was like, God, oh, I love when we record and I'm learning stuff like not to sound like I'm this know-it-all arrogant guy but like when we did the prenup recording i thought i had an understanding and i knew nothing and this he i mean he his it very quickly blew my mind on his you know gross income versus earnings versus pe versus blah 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 blah, blah, blah. and i was like oh okay yeah this is not my realm and he's all right so yeah yeah it's great episode lots of fun the prenup episode actually changed my whole mind on prenups don't tell my husband um, but that was a really, really fun episode as well. Uh, and I'm looking that up. That was episode 301 with Aaron Thomas. That was a great episode as well. But we're not talking about prenups on this episode. We're talking about the stock market. We change it up over here. It's always related to money. And this one is, this one's fun. You're going to learn a lot about the stock market, why it goes up, why it goes down, and what you can do to take advantage of it. 
Remember when you had to pay to get a Leeds phone number? It was like the dark ages. Until Deal Machine made skip tracing a thing of the past. Now, with your Deal Machine plan, you'll get unlimited access to phone numbers and contact information for no extra cost. That's right. Get high quality, reliable information trusted by leading financial institutions, all fully compliant with the federal do not call list. Explore over 150 data points, including age, gender, marital status, occupation, and a ton more. Trust me, this is the data you need for off-market deals. With new filters, people flags, and color-coded phone numbers, lead management just got a ton easier. Ready to step up your investing game? Sign up for a Deal Machine plan today and gain immediate access to this unlimited treasure trove of contact information and phone numbers. Just head to dealmachine.com bp. Transform your lead generation and deal-making strategies with Deal Machine. Sign up today and start exploring the unlimited possibilities at dealmachine.com BP. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that I turned one of my first homes into an Airbnb? It's true. And it even helped me get the extra income I needed to launch my real estate career. So if you want to try your hand at making even more income with your property, Airbnb is the place to be. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. When it comes to financial guidance, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When Mindy and I want to upgrade our wallets, we turn to NerdWallet. Scott's right. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, Mindy and I were paying for vacations in cash, missing out on miles, and not even knowing what we're leaving on the table. But now we're flying through the skies for free, thanks to our new cards with more miles and upgrades than ever. So if you want more travel rewards, hotel upgrades, or airport lounge access, no matter where you go next, let NerdWallet help you make it happen with a killer travel card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at NerdWallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval, and terms of each credit card issuer apply. Brian Feraldi, welcome to the Bigger Pockets Money Podcast. Mindy, it is awesome to be here. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to talk to you today. Today, we're talking to Brian Feraldi, author of the Choose Five publishing book, Why Does the Stock Market Go Up? Everything you should have been taught about investing in school, but weren't. Brian, this is going to be a really timely show given the first half of 2020, which if you've been paying attention to the stock market, you are feeling the pinch. Many people... This is their first experience with a prolonged down market. Our last bull run basically started in March of 2009 with lots of little dips and bumps, of course, along the way, but has been basically up and to the right ever since then. With the exception of March of 2020, we had a big drop and then an almost immediate recovery. But this feels different. It always feels different, but this feels like super different. What would you tell someone who is freaking out about the current state of the economy, the current state of the stock market, and kind of the outlook for the future, all of the news stories are starting to say, there's a recession coming and the stock market's going to keep crashing and and the sky is falling. It's chicken little all over the place. What is your advice for people who are uh, having a little bit of trepidation? Well, what we're going through right now is a great example of the difference between being able to handle volatility in theory and being able to handle volatility in real time when you're living through it minute by minute. Uh, If anybody's looked back at the historic returns of like the S&P 500, it pretty much looks like a squiggly line that just goes bottom left uh, to upper right. And if you've done any sort of compound annual growth calculator on it, you know that a little bit of money put into that produces massive 
massive amounts of money when judged over the appropriate period of time, which is measured in decades, not months, not weeks, not years. It's measured in decades. Um, so, but the, there's a huge difference between understanding that in theory and understanding that in reality. Uh, Jason Zweig has a wonderful uh, thought process about that. It's like when you're meeting with your investment um, advisor, he's like, how much risk can you handle in theory? It's kind of like showing you a picture of a snake and saying, does this look scary? And then it's like saying, all right, let's actually live through this. And he takes a live snake and throws it on your lap and saying, how do you feel right now, right? I mean, that is truly the difference between understanding volatility in theory and living through it day by day in your port portfolio. The most important important thing that people that are investing in the stock market right now need to understand is that declines are perfectly normal perfectly normal. It is a completely healthy thing for the stock market to decline over various periods uh, of time. Every decline uh, rhymes with previous decline, and every decline really feels like that's it. Capitalism is over. We had a great run, but now, now things are really taking off and are permanently going to go down the, the tube, especially if you watch the news and there's talk about, let's see, what, what's in the news? Supply chains concerns. There's inflation, right? There's recession on the horizon. There's a war that could potentially escalate. There is an endless amount of negative news uh, that, that's out there. However, if you look back at the long-term returns of the stock market, it has, it has survived and thrived in all kinds of, of environments. We've survived recessions, depressions, we've survived pandemics, we've survived terrorist attack, presidential assassinations, massive world wars, huge debts, and yet the endless, uh, the, the result is that the stock market eventually bottoms and continues to push higher. So my, my advice to people that are worried right now is to look at the long-term chart of the S&P 500 and just keep zooming out. I love that. And I love that you said decades. I, you know, I'm, I'm a whole life insurance may not necessarily be my favorite thing in the world, but I love when they argue, well, imagine if you had put all your life savings in 2007 into the stock market and then you retired in 2009. And I'm like, yes. And imagine if you backed that out a hundred years and actually did the math because it's a whole different story. Like I, I told someone just last week, like, Hey, if you had invested on the peak of 1929 or whatever, like when the market tanked and then just let it sit for the next hundred years, like you wouldn't be upset about it. Like long term, you're not going to be upset, even if you that's the beauty of, you know, I'm sure we're going to talk dollar cost averaging and different things throughout. But like just staying consistent. It's great. It works long term. Very, very much so. But I, I will tell you, the, the thing that always confused me about the stock market was it's not hard to realize why the stock market goes down. I feel like that is relatively intuitive. Even if you know nothing about the stock market, it went down in 2001, uh, 2000, 2001, terrorist attacks, right? That's an easy explanation. Went down in 2007 to 2009, right? Housing crisis, Great Depression Part Two. It went down in 2020, right? COVID. Uh, more recently, it's gone down because of uh, potential nuclear war supply. It's not hard to understand why the stock market goes down. What always confused me was why the stock market ever went up in the first place. Why does the stock market go up, Brian? That's a semi-complicated question, but the, the, the ultimate answer, the ultimate reason that the stock market goes up uh, over time is that business profits uh, go up over time. But let me dig into that a little bit further. First, let's answer the question, what is 
the stock market. That term is thrown out all around the time. Generally, when people refer to the stock market in the United States, what they're referring to is either the S&P 500 or the Dow Jones Industrial Average. Both of those are simply indices that contain collection of companies. In the Dow's case, it's a collection of 30 of the largest and most profitable companies in America. In the S&P 500's case, it's a collection of 500 of the largest and most profitable companies in America. And those indices track the overall uh, performance of those companies on any given uh, day, week, month, uh, or, or year. However, what people don't see is the profits that those companies are actually producing. The only information that most people get about the stock market is what? Price. That's it. That's the only information that people have access to. What happened to the price of this index today? What happened to the price of this stock today? Th that's the only thing that 99% of people look at and focus on when they're talking about the stock market. What is hidden behind that, if you dig into details a little bit more, is that behind the stock market are those businesses, and those businesses are generating profits. And if you look over long stretches of time, the undeniable trend of those business profits are up and to the right. That is the reason why the stock market has always recovered from, from previous crashes is that business profits eventually recover and that leads to higher prices. I have a question and I don't think I was, I was debating whether it was worth asking this. Curious as you're digging, cause you're mentioning, you know, the things that actually go into businesses that drive the stock market. Uh, I have been debating, not even debating, but you know, I have a I've had a semi-bleak outlook on Tesla since their P.E. ratio went to, you know, 2,000% or whatever, um, or 1,000% or wherever crazy number it hit. But everybody tries to tell me that the reason is because they're baking in all of his private companies into the valuation and what he can do in the future. And I was just curious if I'm missing something that you might know or if you smell as much bull as I do. Uh, so the P.E. ratio is a wonderful metric but you have to know when it's useful and when it's not. Uh, Tesla, on Tesla, it's more useful today than it ever has been in history. However, um, when a company is focused exclusively on the top line, as Tesla primarily is, the P-E ratio is useless. And the reason it's useless is because the company is purposely investing in itself like crazy, right? So it's hiring engineers, it's hiring like R&D, it's got hiring salespeople, it's opening superchargers. It's doing all of that to fund future growth. Because the company is focused on growing the top line and not the bottom line, the earnings power of the company are artificially depressed. Okay, so if the E, if the earnings are artificially depressed, then the P-E ratio is artificially overstated. Now, once the company normalizes for profits, which by the way, it's much closer today. In fact, in the most recent quarter, it's net profit margin was like 10%. So for every dollar in sales, they kept like 10 cents as profit. That's insanely good for a auto company. So the PE ratio is useful is, is more useful today. When it was 2000, it was not useful. The way to judge Tesla, a uh, value Tesla is, first off, it's really hard, but I would say the price to sales ratio and the price to gross profit ratio are much better, better metrics. That Tesla piece is really interesting. As you know, if you listen to the show, you know my husband is obsessed with Tesla and he of course had no qualms about that. As you started asking him questions, David, I was like, you should just call up Carl, he'll tell you. All this stuff, he'll give you all the Kool-Aid to swallow. Do you guys have a Tesla? 
We do not have a Tesla, even though we have talked about getting a Tesla for years and years and years. And the girls want a Tesla and he keeps saying, oh, when Tesla gets up to X number of dollars per share, then we'll buy one. And then he keeps raising that up a little bit more. I bit the bullet a year over, just over a year ago. It's my favorite purchase ever. Carl, listen to this. Yeah, I I don't own one yet, but I love them. And I've on multiple occasions have gotten very close to throwing the deposit on the Roadster, but I'm holding off. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, I bought a Model Y. <laughs> I would take the Roadster. I don't know. The, the steering wheel looks a little weird, right? I, I definitely want to just floor it and just see what that feels like. I mean, you don't have, you don't drive them though, so. <laughs> if you're not going to drive it, why do you buy it? I meant it drives you. Oh, okay. Okay. Fine. Um, let's talk about valuation. A stock is priced at X number of dollars. That's what it's worth, right? Is that the question? Yeah, that's, <laughs> yeah. that's how it, that's what it's worth. You, it's like, how do you, I, I'm trying to figure out how to phrase this question because that's not what it's worth. A stock is worth, you know, there's different ways to come up with the valuation of the company. Correct. It's hard for me to explain this. I can look at this and be like, I know what I'm talking about, but I don't know how to explain it. I'm going to use my example I use in my book about the coffee shop that I think simplifying things always make things easy. Yes. Yes. So let's talk about valuing. How do you determine? Because a lot of people in the fire movement say, oh, just in index funds, just do index funds. And that's I think that's a great advice. I really do think that most people do not have the time and inclination to do the work to justify individual stock investing. Um, in fact, you have a really great questionnaire in your book. It's, um, it says, if you're thinking about buying individual stocks, ask yourself these questions. Do you enjoy the process of researching individual companies? Are you an organized person? Are you willing to spend the time to develop a system that helps you identify good investments? Those three questions are really, really, really important. It's not a, oh, they had good earnings last month. I should invest in them. That's actually a really terrible way to choose stocks. And I think that's how a lot of people choose stocks is, oh, they're up today. Do you remember the the newspapers where you would you could read all of the the stock reports. And that's a terrible way to pick stocks. You have to do research. And I'm talking like deep, deep, deep research. We do some individual stock investing. And I say we because we're married. He does individual stock investing. And he is my husband, Carl. And he listens to Tesla, every Tesla podcast that there is. He reads every bit of Tesla news that comes out. He is... He knows more about Tesla than that guy, Elon. He is so obsessed with this company, but he is fascinatedly obsessed. He doesn't think of it as a chore. I would never invest in Tesla if it was up to me because I don't care. I don't want to do the research. I would rather throw the money in the index funds because it's easy. It's set it and forget it, and I don't have to spend the time. But I think that is a really important question. Are you willing to spend the time to develop a system that helps you identify good investments? And one of those things is how do you is determining the value of the company and where you think the company is going to go in the future. And just because the information is there doesn't mean that that's the information that you should like it takes some diving into, I guess. So how do you determine the value of a stock? You just went through Tesla, which I thought was very interesting. 
Yeah, figuring out what a company is worth is one of the most difficult exercises that's out there. And in truth, there are many different ways to value a company and what a company is worth at any given time. If a company is publicly traded, what a company is worth at any given time is literally their share price, uh, their current share price times the number of shares outstanding plus the amount of debt that they have minus the amount of cash. That's a fancy way of saying a term called enterprise value, which is basically like if I was to buy this thing outright uh, right now, uh, the entire company, how much money would I have to raise uh, to, to do that? So enterprise value is one way of measuring the current value of a company. Another is called the market capitalization, which is that same calculation. So it's just the, the dollar price of one share times number of shares are outstanding. And that gives you the current value of that company's uh, equity. Uh, both of those are valid ways of saying how much is this company uh, worth right now. But the value of a company changes, a publicly traded company, second by second with every uptick and downtick uh, of, of its stock. And even if you look at big, stable, predictable companies like McDonald's, like Coca-Cola, like, like Walmart, if you look at their stock price over any given year, the difference between the high and the low, the 52-week high and the 52-week low, can be 20, 30, or even 40%. And those are for big, stable, predictable, boring businesses. And that's the market's way of telling you that we think this, this company is worth somewhere between this number uh, and, and this number. So valuation, figuring out what the business worth um, is, is a very, very difficult exercise. If you ask 10 different people, what's this thing worth? You're going to get 10 different answers. But let's let's simplify things for a second. Uh, Mindy, let's say that me and you, we start a, a coffee shop uh, together. We both uh, invest some money. We get this coffee shop off, off the ground. Uh, we invest $100,000 combined in it. And in the first year, our company makes $100,000 in profit. It's super, super successful. So we now have this coffee shop that is producing every year $100,000 in profit. And then we go to David and we say, all right, David, I have this, we, we have this asset, but both of us are tired of running this coffee shop. We, we want to sell. Uh, what would you pay us for for this company? Well, let's just throw some numbers out there. Let's say David comes to us and says, um, I'll give you $100,000 for your, for your coffee shop. We have no idea what we're doing, so we say, okay, that's fair. So we sell our coffee shop to David. Uh, he gives us $100,000. Now David has this asset that's producing $100,000 in profit uh, every year. The price of that deal was $100,000. The earnings or the profits per year of that company was $100,000. That's a P-E ratio of one. Well, is that a good deal? Well, David is now earning 100% return on his investment every year. That's an outstanding deal uh, for, for David, right? What, what, what do CDs pay at the bank? 1%? Maybe he's now getting 100% return on his, his investment. So Mindy, you and I kind of get screwed on that purchase price. It was way too low. So a PE ratio of one for our company is out, way too, way too low. Let's take it to the other extreme. Let's say David, we all agree that our business is worth $10 million. $10 million. David agrees. He gives us $10 million. He has this asset that's producing $100,000 in cash every year. Well, what's David's return on investment now? Well, he just spent $10 million and he's only getting $100,000 back every year. That's a 1% return on his, his investment. 
Why would he go through the hassle of buying and running a coffee shop if he could buy a government bond and get 2% return on his investment? So one, a P.E. ratio of one, way too low. Terrible deal for us, too good of a deal for him. A P.E. ratio of 100, terrible deal for him, way too good of a deal for us. Let's split the difference and let's say, how about, how about we a P.E. ratio of 10? So what would our company be worth if the price to earnings ratio of our business was 10? Well, we made $100,000 in profit. Multiply that by that P.E. ratio of 10. Our business is worth a million bucks. Let's say we all agree to that. So we sell this asset for a million dollars. That's what we get today. David, by contrast, gives us a million dollars, and he's now earning a 10% return on his asset over any given, uh, given year. Let's say that's a, that's, a fair, that's a fair deal. Bingo. We now know how to value this business. That's an extremely overly simplified example of figuring out what a business is worth. But that same concept applies to the stock market as a whole. The S&P 500, that index of 500 companies that's out there, also has a, a PE, uh, also have a PE ratio, a price to earnings uh, ratio. And that PE ratio fluctuates up and down depending on the earnings of the companies in there and the value that investors by and large are willing to pay uh, on the company. But broadly speaking, PE ratio is one of the simplest and in many cases overly simplified ways of valuing a business. Curious, just for clarification, I'm, a, I'm a mainly a real estate guy. Uh, and when I'm a stock market guy, I'm an index fund guy because of the piece that you said about wanting to spend time researching. I don't. <laughs> um, so, uh, but I'm curious uh, on the on the earnings side when you're talking about this valuation in real estate, it's net operating income, which is uh, total income minus expenses, exclusive of debt service. Um, mm -hmm. Is that the same here? Like, if the company has debt, you don't factor that against the earnings, or is it? Would that be factored in as well? There's lots of ways that you can calculate it, and there, the, the P/E ratio is an overly simplified one. Uh, but in the uh, in the earnings that that we use, the, we assume the earnings of the business was hundred thousand dollars, and that is accounting for all costs, all costs including uh, debt uh, debt services. You can get much fancier uh, th than that by excluding uh, debt. You can uh, any interest expense. You can uh, exclude uh, the tax rate uh, that you pay. You can exclude fancy uh, accounting terms like a depreciation and amortization. So there's lots of different metrics that you can use. It's just the PEA, PE ratio is the simplest one. Perfect. Appreciate it. Okay. So by your comments, you just said that 10 is the best PE ratio out there, right? One is, is terrible and 100 is awesome and 10 is perfect. What is a good PE ratio in the stock market right now? Well, if you look at the historic PE ratio of, of the S&P 500, you get numbers that are all over, all over the, the map. I mean, truly. Uh, down uh, in 1949, 1950, somewhere around there, the PE ratio of the S&P 500 got as low as six or seven. Um, and in the 19, uh, in the 2000 boom, at the peak of the dot-com uh, craziness, the PE ratio of the S&P 500 went as high as 43. Uh, so that is an enormously wide range that the, uh, the P.E. ratio of the S&P 500 has swung uh, in between. And there's a lot, a lot of factors that influence what is the current P.E. ratio uh, of the market. Uh, one of them is the current um, interest rates, prevailing interest rates uh, that, that are out there. 
By and large, the historic returns of the S&P 500 are somewhere around 10% um, annualized of return. Uh, right? If you look back at long-term historic data, that's what the market uh, normalizes uh, towards. If you subtract inflation uh, from that number to get a real return, it's somewhere around 6 uh, to, to, to 7%. Well, if you were looking at bond prices today, if you're going to make an investment in, in bonds today, what kind of interest rates uh, could, could you get? 2%, 3%, maybe 4%. So by comparison, the 10% return that you get on the S&P uh, S 500 or the stock market looks very, very, very uh, attractive. Now, reverse that to the 1980s. Uh, back then, which is when my parents were buying their house, the prevailing interest rates at the time were in the teens. Right? They were like 12, 13, 14, 15 uh, percent at the time. So you could buy a government bond and earn a 15 percent return uh, on, on your money. Why would you want to invest in the stock market if you had this guaranteed thing uh, out there? So to compensate for that extreme uh, interest rate that was out there that you could get essentially, quote unquote, uh, risk free by investing in, in, in bonds, the price to earnings ratio of the, of the market had to fall dramatically so that the earnings yields of the buyer could could compete effectively with the with the S and uh, with the um prevailing uh, bond prices. So the interest rate that's out there, the inflation rate that's out there, the general mood of investors, the amount of liquidity that, that's out there, what's happening with the world globally, all of these factors and many, many, many other influence what the current price to earnings ratio is of the S&P 500 at any given time. This is why stock prices bounce around so much and it drives people absolutely crazy. Uh, if you don't know that there is this thing called the P.E. ratio and you don't know that there's thing called earnings behind the scenes, um, stock prices just look random. Because on any given day, week, month, or year, they are random, right? Uh, on any given day, I think the S&P 500 historically is up 51% of the time, and it's down 49% of the time. It is literally a coin flip what's going what's gonna to happen in the stock market on any given day. But the longer the time period you measure the S&P 500, the more and more those odds tilt in favor of up days versus down days. In fact, my favorite statistic about the S&P 500 uh, ever is that over every single 20-year period in U.S. stock market history, you have earned a positive real return. Let me say that again. 100% of the time, over every rolling 20-year period in the U.S. stock market history, you have earned a positive real return after accounting for inflation. That includes investing at the absolute peak in 1921, investing at the absolute peak of the dot-com uh, craze, investing at the worst possible days, the, the, the local highs. You have made money 100% of the time when measured over 20-year periods. This is why I constantly say the stock market actually isn't risky. What's risky is holding stocks for a shorter duration than their intended holding period. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that a long time ago, before I ever started my real estate business, I turned one of my first primary residences into an Airbnb? And that's the extra income that I needed from Airbnb that gave me the confidence to go out and work for myself and eventually quit my nine to five job. And now I have dozens of Airbnbs all over the country. I've even partnered up with the old David Green on a recent property in Scottsdale to take our portfolio to the next level. And of course, we host it on Airbnb. But you don't need to be a full-time real estate investor to start on Airbnb. As a matter of fact, I was self-managing 10 properties while working my 9-to-5 job, so I know anybody can do it. 
Think about it this way. You're looking for extra income and going on a vacation. Wouldn't it be great to rent out your space and let your property pay for itself while you're gone? I did this one time. I pitched my wife and my roommate because we were house hacking on the idea of renting out our home and it paid for all of our expenses on a trip to Mexico City. So go and give it a try. It might just change your life just like it did mine. And I really do mean that. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. What if I told you that I, Mindy Jensen, the queen of budgeting, the personal finance fanatic, sometimes forgot to cancel my subscriptions? I know, it's horrible. $10 here, $15 there. My useless subscription bills could have taken my whole family out to dinner multiple times. Rocket Money can make all that subscription sadness suddenly vanish. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. You can see all your subscriptions in one place and cancel money-sucking subscriptions with a tap. They'll even try to get you a refund for the last couple of months of wasted money and negotiate to lower your bills for you. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over $500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash bpmoney. That's rocketmoney.com slash bpmoney. rocketmoney.com slash bpmoney. You're trying to close on your next rental, so why is your insurance company dragging its feet? With long lead times and never-ending paper forms, it's no wonder it takes forever to finally get a policy. Modern investors deserve better. They deserve Steadily.com. At Steadily.com, you'll get fast, affordable landlord insurance available online 24-7 in just a few clicks. You can even get next-day coverage, which takes just minutes, by the way, to obtain. And you can do it all from your phone. Steadily was founded by landlords who created insurance products tailored to the unique needs of this industry. It's their sole focus, and that's why landlords nationwide consistently rate them 4.8 out of 5 stars. So whether you've got a single family, short-term, or multifamily portfolio, Steadily.com can secure the best coverage at the best price to protect your properties. Discover how Steadily can save you both time and money on your rental property insurance. Visit Steadily.com for a commitment-free quote tailored to your needs today. Real estate investing is great, but for some, the tenant phone calls and clogged toilets aren't all that attractive. So how do you invest in real estate without getting your hands dirty? Invest for truly passive income with Pine Financial Group. Pine's mortgage fund offers an 8% preferred return and an attractive profit split, with 70% of profits going to the investors. You'll earn passive income by participating in lending to house flippers. And it's secure because senior lien holders, that's you, get paid first. Their rigorous underwriting process and the backing of the physical asset provide additional security in case of borrower default. Plus, by investing with Pine Financial Group, you contribute to the revitalization of communities by redirecting your funds from Wall Street to Main Street, supporting local economies and generating profits simultaneously. This investment is reserved for accredited investors, but if you are not accredited, Pine Financial has options for you too. Don't miss this opportunity to back Main Street over Wall Street and start earning passive real estate income. Learn more about investing with Pine at pinefinancialgroup.com BP. That's pinefinancialgroup.com BP. What is their intended hold period? Well, if you listen to a lot of people such as myself, the, the, the stock market is a great place for long 
long-term capital. You shouldn't put any money into the market that you know you're going to need over the next one, three, or even five years. Uh, if you look at the uh, five-year returns of the S&P 500, I believe the number is something like you have a positive return over five-year periods about 80% uh, of the time. Over 10-year periods, it's towards the 90% uh, percent, uh, of the time. But that still means uh, either 20 or 10% of the time, if you invest and wait five years, you could have, you're going to have less money uh, in five or 10 years than, than you had uh, uh, today. So it really depends on your, your risk tolerance. Uh, but this is why the stock market is such a wonderful place for long-term capital. That's why it's such a good place for retirement funds uh, to, to, to go in there. If you have a multi-year and a multi-decade, even better time horizon, uh, you should want essentially 100% of that capital uh, in, in the stock market, because that's the thing that historically has driven the highest return. Any shorter period than that, any shorter time period than five years, you're really taking on a whole bunch of market risk, and you might not be able to buy the thing that you're hoping uh, in that time period. Okay, let's pivot to the 4% rule because the FIRE movement is predicated on the 4% rule, Bill Bengen's brilliant analysis of past performance of the stock market. However, past performance is not indicative of future gains. What is your opinion of the 4% rule? Because this is a long-term play with the 4% rule. You're not He's not suggesting that you invest today to start pulling out tomorrow. He's suggesting that you invest for a while to pull out over the course of 30 years, which plays into your uh, excitement of the stock market, which I agree with, by the way. I'm not just saying it's your excitement. It's our shared excitement of the stock market. But what is your opinion of the 4% rule? I love the 4% rule. I love simple rules of thumb that dramatically simplify things and simplify decision makings. And as far as, as, far as uh, rules of thumb go, uh, the 4% rule is a pretty darn good one. Uh, the figuring out how much, how am I going to pay for and handle retirement is one of the most complex math problems that just exists out there, right? You are taking in so many potential variables uh, in, into a play. Uh, how much income am I going to have? What are inflation rates uh, going to be? What's prevailing interest rates going to be uh, at, at the time? What are my health needs? What are my vacation uh, preferences? What's my lifestyle going to be? What kind of major life events can I look forward to? All of those are massive unknowns. So if you can just take that and simplify that and say the 4% rule, aka 25 times your annual spending rate and use that as a, as a goalpost, I think that that is a, a fantastic starting point. Uh, personally, um, I, I, I'm on the journey towards uh, FI myself, and I am just a, a conservative person by, by nature, so I have always had it in my mind, oh, I'm going to get to the 3% rule, right? I want to get 33 times my spending and really go super worst case uh, scenario, uh, but the more I've learned about it, the more I realize that my um, need for a 3% rule is, is ridiculous, and it's being way too conservative uh, because you can always, as a person, adapt to, to, to changes that you see in the market. For example, if I saw that we're going through um a major bear market and my net worth declined by like 30 or 40%, I guarantee you I would change my spending behavior, right? I would pull back on spending things. I would try and take lower cost vacations. I would perhaps not eat out as much. So I would adjust my spending uh, accordingly. Uh, conversely, if we went through a 2020 style stock market boom when everything uh, went up, I would be more willing to pay for capital expenditures uh, in my life, buy things that were more expensive or pay for uh, fancy uh, va vacations. 
None of that is really factored into the 4% rule. It just figures you're going to spend a certain amount and increase your spending by every year. Uh, moreover, it's never been easier than it is today to pick up a, a part-time job that generates just a tiny little bit of income for yourself. Right? It's really not that hard to generate a few hundred or even a few thousand dollars in income uh, for, for yourself in, 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 I put this in quick air quotes, in retirement. And if you can do that, uh, then, then the 4% rule is way too uh, uh, conservative. Uh, but as far as, as rules of thumb go, I think the 4% rule is a fabulous starting point. I like that you say rule of thumb. I think that the, it should be renamed to the 4% rule of thumb. It isn't exactly, you know, on the dot. Although if you look at, uh, you know, Bill Bengen's research ended in the 90s because that's when he, his analysis was performed. Michael Kitsis picked up where Bengen left off and he determined that the rule was even more valid than Bengen had originally thought. Um, in a in a post that he made in January of 2022, and I'm going to give him a pass on this because it was January before the market started tumbling this month or this year. He said, in other words, four percent can be considered a floor for retirement spending, not a ceiling, because anything less than a four percent initial withdrawal rate would virtually guarantee that there would be excess money left on the table after 30 years. Now this is. 30 years. And we, the Bengen's analysis was for retirement age based on a 30 year portfolio. If you're retiring early, if retiring when you're 30, you're probably going to need this for more than 30 years. But again, you would guarantee uh, anything less than a 4% initial withdrawal rate would virtually guarantee that there would be excess money left on the table after 30 years. So you would have more money at the end of 30 years than you like than you could spend. Um, and he goes on to say, in fact, retirees over the last 140 years who strictly followed the 4% rule would have had only a 10% chance of finishing with anything less than their initial portfolio value. We're not even talking about having zero. We're talking about going below the initial portfolio value after 30 years. And an equally likely chance of finishing with more than six times their starting principal. And all of this is amazing to listen to. And it doesn't help you at all when your portfolio drops 25% in six months after having gone on a tear for 12 years. Which leads me back to the very beginning of the show where I said, hey, what do you? What advice do you have for people? But I, I love this rule of thumb and these smarter than me guys have, figured it out and but it's still so hard to get over your emotions that's another one of your individual stock questions can you can you um are you good at managing your emotions <laughs> anybody who's ever listened to this show is like nope mindy's not good at managing her emotions Hey, know thyself. That's an incredibly yes. important attribute, right? This is why this is why rules of thumb are helpful, but they don't apply to everybody because everybody is 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 personal, right? We all have our own personal uh, needs. Uh, personally, I I tend to be hyper conservative with 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 my um, uh, with my finances uh, because I'm just a nervous person and I just want to have as many um, barriers between me and an awful life as I can possibly as I can possibly get. So I have long kept a pretty 
pretty sizable cash uh, position, even though uh, fin financially I'd be, I'd be better off today if I kept all that uh, in the stock market. I just like knowing that it's there in case uh, anything, uh, in case everything uh, goes wrong in my life, that I have a big cash cushion. I, I also am a big fan of having absolutely zero debt of, of any kind, including, including a mortgage. I know that that decision is suboptimally from a pure financial perspective, especially today. Like when you, if you could lock in a rate, uh, in a mortgage rate of say 3% or something like that in the, in the last year, and now inflation is 7%, I mean, the, the, um, the mathematical gains on keeping that money um, invested are so much higher than you could earn by paying off your mortgage. For me personally, I don't care. Uh, I still want my, my, my mortgage gone because I don't want any, I, I want to permanently lower my fixed cost to the lowest number possible, period. And by eliminating my mortgage, I have now permanently reduced my largest uh, monthly expense. To me, that is worth the, the satisfaction I get, um, the psychological satisfaction I get is worth the lost potential upside. But this is why personal finances is always personal. I like what you said because it shows that you have thought it through. You didn't just pay off your mortgage because that's what Dave Ramsey said to do, so you did it. You thought about what it means. You took into account that it is mathematically not the most optimal choice, and you said, I will sleep better at night knowing that my mortgage is paid off, so that's what I'm going to do. Having taken into consideration the different factors, I'm still going to do it, as opposed to, eh, I'm just going to do it. Like it, it, You're thinking it through, and you're right. Personal finance is personal, and you make the decisions for your specific situation based on mathematically what works best for you and also mentally what works best for you. I can sleep well at night having a mortgage. David's got like 100 mortgages. He can sleep just fine, too. I was about to say, I've, I would say 75, 80% of my net worth is in real estate. It's all pretty highly leveraged. It cash flows, it covers itself, it's whatever. And yet, ironically, my wife, who is very risk averse and, and doesn't like how much debt we have out on a lot of these properties, I am trying to convince her to let me focus on paying off the primary residence mortgage. And she's like, well, I just kind of assumed mortgage is a piece of life. And so it's kind of funny when you flip it, because I'm like, I agree with you. Like, I'm all for all of this risk in my LLCs because it's cash flowing, it's doing whatever. But in my primary, I'm like, well, why don't we just pay that off so we can spend more money on things we enjoy? That's right. There's no, there's no right or wrong way to do it. But when, um, when, when, I, when I thought about that sub number for myself, I, I, st I stopped and said, well, what's, what's the point of money? Like, what is the purpose of money? Is it to maximize the number on a spreadsheet? Is that the purpose of money? Or is it the purpose of money to allow ourselves to live the life, exact lifestyle that we want and, and minimize the amount of financial risk that we're taking on? When I viewed it from that lens, paying off my mortgage became not a no-brainer, but a much easier decision when I said, what do I care what the ultimate value of my, my net worth is uh, when I die if, I could, if, I, if paying this off now would make me live a better life uh, today? So when for that lens, paying off my, my mortgage became not a no-brainer, but uh, a relatively easy decision. And that's, that's what you have to do is think about it. Think it through. Make sure that you are doing what is right for you based on thoughtful consideration. One last thing I wanted to ask you about. You share a hot tip for investing that is simultaneously sad, like heartbreakingly sad to me, common sense and potentially completely unknown to a newer investor. You call it the multi-million dollar mistake. 
Now this is actually a, uh, a, a sad one a little bit, but it's kind of just knowing the difference between what an IRA is and how an IRA works, or what a 401k is and how a 401k works. A lot of people, especially those that aren't uh, as fluent in finance as we are, uh, think that the term Roth or the term IRA or the term 401k is in itself an investment. Like it's something that you can go out there and put money into, and that is itself uh, an investment. Uh, the truth of the matter is that a 401k, an IRA, and a Roth IRA, and many other terms are, are just wrappers around accounts that give them designated tax purposes. So one mistake, one potentially really big mistake that people can make is they could go to Vanguard, they could open up an IRA, they could open up a Roth IRA, they could contribute money to it, and that money goes into that account and sits in cash. It just sits there in, in cash account because they never took the next step of actually taking the money and investing it into some kind of, uh, of fund. Uh, a good analogy I heard was you think about those accounts kind of like a gift card, right? It's like you're putting money into this account that's a gift card, and if it just stays in that gift card, well, that's earning you nothing. You have to go out and spend the gift card in order to get some value um, out of it. So this can literally be a multi-million dollar mistake that people can make if they're just putting money into an account, but they're not taking that money in the account and investing it into like the Vanguard Total Stock Market Index Fund or the Vanguard Total Bond Market Index Fund. So if you are doing that, please go check your account and make sure that it's not all sitting there in a money market account or a cash account that you're actually investing it the way that you intend to. Yes, that's a research opportunity for anybody listening. Go in and check the allocation of every one of your investment accounts right now. Stop the recording or stop the listening and go look. And every single one of your accounts, if you're like my husband, you've got a thousand places to check. If you're a more normal person, you probably have one or two, uh, maybe your post-tax and pre-tax, but check them and make sure that your money has been invested in something other than nothing. And we're not going to tell you where to put it because this is not an investment show. Okay. Brian, this was really, really helpful. I learned a lot about PEs and valuations, and we need to come back and have a strictly, this is how you take an, and analyze a stock, because I think there is some value in individual stock investments. I encourage people to not invest in individual stocks unless they are absolutely certain that they want to do all the work and ride that roller coaster, which it can be very, very volatile. Uh, just like a Tesla, it goes like this all the time. And when it goes down, we buy more because he has done all the research that he wanted to do to learn everything about that. But seriously, he listens to hours of Tesla podcasts every single day. I can't believe there's more than one. There's tons. Uh, but if you're not willing to do the work, then the index fund is right for you. Uh, but I really appreciate your time today, Brian. Thank you so much for joining us. What is the book called and where can we get it? Uh, thank you guys so much for having me. This has been a blast. And I would absolutely love to come back and either talk valuation with you guys, or if you want to get really nerdy, how to dig into a 10K, how to analyze a business. I, I love talking about that kind of stuff. Uh, but the best way, uh, the book is called Why Does the Stock Market Go Up? Um, it is very much geared at people that are brand new to investing, people that have zero of zero financial knowledge and just want to figure out what is the stock market and how, how does it work. That's very much the person that was um, in, intended towards. Uh, you can find at all major uh, online resellers, so Barnes and Nobles, Amazon, or ChooseFI.com, uh, etc. And where can people find out more about you, Brian? 
The easiest way to connect with me is on Twitter. I'm very active on there and just my name at Brian Feraldi. If you're interested in analyzing individual businesses, I have a YouTube channel where we do exactly that and I show you uh, how, how uh, me and my uh, business partner do so. So that's also my name, Brian Feraldi. Awesome. And we will include links to all of these in the show notes, which can be found at biggerpockets.com slash money show 327. All right, Brian, thank you so much. And we'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Mindy. Thanks, David. Great to meet you. All right. That was Brian Feraldi, author of Why Does the Stock Market Go Up? David, what'd you think of the show? That was great. I think he did a great job breaking down PE ratios. And I like that he just we discussed the 4% safe withdrawal rate and index funds. And, you know, I always like when I get confirmation about my decisions. And so I am an index fund guy. And so when he says things like, you should invest in index funds if you're too lazy or don't want to do the research, and that's me, do not want to do the research, do not want to wake up when the stock market opens and do what's going on today. And and nope, don't want to deal with any of that. So it's really nice when I get the affirmation of you're in the right place by just doing an index fund to let someone else do the thinking. (laughs) So... Yep, I am. We we started off as individual investors, individual stock investors, and we have moved to mainly index funds because that's a rising tide lifts all ships and all these you know cliches. But that's so true. The he's got a, a statistic in his book between two thousand four and two thousand nineteen, more than eighty nine percent of mutual funds underperformed the stock market as a whole. That is shocking. You're not going to do better than the stock market as a whole. Throw it into an index fund and be done. Set it and forget it. If you are unwilling to spend the time to develop a system that helps you identify good investments, if you do not enjoy the process of researching individual companies, if you're not good at managing your emotions, individual stock picking is not the choice for you. I at the risk of frustrating all real estate investors out there. And with the, uh, the announcement and the reminder that I am one of those real estate investors, I don't think there's a single investment out there that is more passive than an index fund. The only thing you need to do once you set up your account and set up the routing is set how much you want to contribute and then leave it alone. I mean, that's that's even more invest, more passive than an LP investor on syndications because you still need to vet the deals before those happen every five to seven years. Whereas with index funds, you can literally just let it ride. Yep. Yeah, no, real estate can be passive-ish. It can be passive-esque, but it is not truly passive. My stocks never call me up in the middle of the night to tell me about a problem. In fact, my stocks never call me up. My index funds never call me ever. And that's okay. Yep. I love it. Okay, David, should we get out of here? We should. From episode 327 of the Bigger Pockets Money podcast, he is David Perret from the Military to Millionaire group. I am Mindy Jensen saying, may the force be with you.
The market is changing, and finding your way can be tricky. Rates shift, headlines whirl, but your goal hasn't changed. You want financial freedom, and the best investors know it's not about timing the market, it's about time in the market. If you're ready to get into real estate investing or take it to the next level, finding an investor-friendly agent is your next step. With the BiggerPockets Agent Finder, you can find the right agent in minutes. Just head to biggerpockets.com slash deals, enter a few details about what and where you want to buy, and boom, instantly matched with an investor-friendly agent who fits the bill. These local market experts can help you navigate the neighborhoods, analyze the numbers, and take action with confidence once and for all. This free resource is only available at biggerpockets.com slash deals. Get an agent, get the deal, and get closer to financial freedom at biggerpockets.com slash deals. That's biggerpockets.com slash deals to find your investor-friendly agent today. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all host and participant opinions are their own. Investment in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. Bigger Pockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.